This is The Mediated Minds, a series of podcasted conversations recorded in relation to the 2021 Noorderlicht for the festival. With me for the fourth episode of The Mediated Mind is Walter Costa, whose work is part of the exhibition in the Research Gallery. Walter, could you introduce yourself? I am uh, Italian, but have been around a bit, like between Spain and Brazil, and yeah, uh, I should define myself as a photographer, but I think it's a bit short as well as it's too much uh, visual artist. So I would stay like kind of in between and also an editor and yeah, photo bookmaker. That to me is exciting in the sense that those who have been listening to the previous episodes may have heard me trying to steer the conversation to photographs and not quite managing. So when it was suggested, actually by Pauline and George, if I recall correctly, to invite you for the podcast, I thought, oh, that's very nice uh, because then we can really speak photographs. And that also has to do with that this is not the first time we speak because we've been working together at the Master Photography and Society at the Royal Academy of Art where you were part of the first cohort of students, right? Yeah, the lab rats. Yeah, the lab rats. And me, I was also a lab rat, but then on the side of the teachers. <laughs> so we've been working together in that context. I have a little bit of pre-knowledge of Walter's work and Walter as a person, but we will try to keep it as open as possible within the context of this podcast. So, well, you already said you're a bit ambiguous about how to define yourself, that definition of, a, of, of an editor and someone interested in photo books maybe sounded the most convincing or the most sort of, you know, this, this is something. Whereas the photographer artist bit is, is sort of an in-between. I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm feeling that I'm there in between. Uh, I do work with pictures so I mean I'm not the photographer that clicks I'm mostly using uh, appropriated images yeah also maybe the scope also of like visual artists becomes too broad for what I do so that's why it, it's more a matter of how depending on the this label the the what I do also is gonna be looked and interpreted and so yeah still doubtful, mm -hmm. I'd say. While mm -hmm. I'm not doubtful about, yeah, the part of uh, editor and, yeah, bookmaker and also teacher in the, the area of, uh, of editing, so in terms of visual narratives, uh, where I have established practice uh, over the years. So that's a label that I feel more comfortable with, uh -huh. let's say. I really liked the, you know, I work with pictures, but I'm not someone who clicks. I'm not a photographer who clicks. That's a nice one. I, I think I'll... Oh, I might borrow that at some point. I do click, but I most of my clicking these days is the clicking of photographs, the reproduction of photographs. That's a variation maybe to, to your position. But what, what was your education then before the Master in The Hague? That's varied, let's say, because I started and made a school of aeronautics because oh, really? I wanted to be a pilot. So it was five years 
That was, was in Italy. In Italy, yeah, the equivalent of like a high school, so before uh, university. Then I realized that the profession was less romantic than I thought. Now basically you are an IT on board of a plane checking that the computer is doing all the jobs. So do have like a flying license, but for smaller planes. And that's the nice part when you can really feel the machine, feel the air and the wings. And you do sometimes? Because I, I took the license in Italy and then I moved, I lived five years in Spain and then five years in Brazil. And now it's my third year here in the Netherlands. So license wise, the bureaucracy, it's a bit complicated. Yeah. So now that I know that I'm going to stay here, I'll start also investigating what do I need to do to start again. But okay. it's definitely something I, I miss a lot. And after aeronautics? Where... After aeronautics, I did a bachelor in uh, political sciences and international studies, which uh, yes, being I, I still feel that it's crucial for my practice. I mean, it's a whole set of knowledge that yeah, helps me understand how the the world works and where to look for cracks on this nice surface. So also, I mean, I remember back then when I decided to study that it was because I didn't want to be fooled by like the official narratives. So I wanted to have the tools to actually get more in depth and see the yeah the backstage be able to understand the mechanisms that are basically regulating the life in, uh, in society and between societies also at an international level. So that's something that, I mean, I ended up not working in that specific field, but it's definitely a set of knowledge that, yeah, it's being super helpful also while... Mm -hmm. I can imagine, also in the process. light of, of the project you're showing here in the festival. No? Definitely. But, f but first, before we jump there, let's, let's finish this line. So we have the political science and then fr from there, where and how did the picture thing come in? Photography has always been there. I mean, since I was a child, I was already kind of the family photographer. And then also with my stepfather, we were like, yeah, sealing the, the kitchen to turn it into a dark room and then developing like black and white pictures. And I was maybe, yeah, seven, eight years old. So there was already like this intimate and magic connection with uh, mm. photography because it was, yeah, I mean, looking at the photographic paper and the picture that appears all of a sudden. So there was this kind of like, almost an alchemy or, or something. So I was I've been always fascinated by it. Then when it became something more serious, let's say, it was when I was still studying uh, my, my bachelor, then I did the last year in uh, Madrid. And then I started realizing that, yeah, well, okay, it's a nice hobby, but it could also be something more. And I actually want it to be something more. Um, the magic incident was that by then it was very active, the uh, Blank Paper Collective School in Madrid was like a group of Spanish photographers that kind of revolutionized the uh, Spanish photographic scene back then, talking about like 2008-2010. It was curious also because it was a collective that worked collectively when it came to education. They were doing their own individual projects but they were together as a school. And that was a concept that I, I liked. So yeah, I started studying courses there. Yeah, all of a sudden it became something 
I was a photographer. So yeah, there was this and also another thing that I really owe to uh, Blank Paper was to understand this magic connection between photography and books because I've always liked both but separately and there's where I discovered that, wow, actually there can be photography in books and that can be very exciting. So yeah, that's where it all started and also my library started back then with like a mm -hmm. few books and now... What works so well about photographs and books? Most people might see photographs mostly on their phone. So what is what is this magic of photos and books? I think that the magic is in the possibility to look at images at a different pace that is, of course, slower than a screen. And Why is it, of course, slower than screen? Sorry, I'm being the three-year-old here, but let's <laughs> let's let's split this out. Yeah, well, even if you think about just the physical gestures involved it's not like scrolling that it's really mm. like uh, very easy to make so already like and the fact that there are pages to be turned it turns also the the object the book into a narrative necessarily because it's not like a, an exhibition where potentially you can see many images all at the same time so you're kind of guided through image after image mm -hmm. and, um, and yeah that's something that turned that sequence into a, a story most almost like automatically because of the physical elements of uh, of the book so you have this sequence of two-dimensional uh, spaces which are the pages that become a three-dimensional thing thanks to the the binding so the the, the spine let's say so that's that becomes a yeah, like uh, there was this experimental publisher and poet, like Ulysses Carrion, uh, Mexican, that actually opened the first independent uh, bookshop in Amsterdam back in the 70s. They said that, yeah, a book is a sequence of spaces, and since these spaces are seen in different times, you create like this timeline that you can fill in in different ways, and where it's not only the visual element that is actually important, but also everything that is around it, opposite to the screen where it's just the image and it's going to be a changing image depending on the screen from which I look at it. So if it's a computer, it's a calibrated screen, it's a mobile phone screen, etc. that there's more control on the image that you want to deliver. And you have the elements of like the feeling of the paper or the kind of book cover that you want. Mm -hmm. So there are all those elements that are all working together in order to bring something and it doesn't have to be a narrative in terms of like yeah going from a b c etc but it can be just a feeling it survives most of like exhibitions and yeah it's also a more intimate relationship to photography compared to an exhibition as well because of the individual relationship the viewer with the book yeah that they handle literally yeah. and feel yeah. and there is a more controlled authorship yeah. is that what you mean with you know the screen you don't you can put something online or you can you can share something in in a picture in whatsapp but even then there's a reduction happening because of what the app does to the photograph that, that's one side of the technology, I guess. Uh, next to, well, the calibration of the screens that you pointed out, or the lack thereof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a way, it's a more controlled experience. Uh, 
in a way that well what you see when like the book has been well made and thought yeah you basically you're yeah it establishes it's like a, a mediator between like the ideas of the author and what every reader is gonna get from that because mm-hmm. also everybody has different experiences so it, we look at the same image i mean i can look at the image of a dog and one has like this childhood memories of that dog that was like the most lovely and it's going to love that picture and another person is going to look at that remembering the dog that attacked the person so i mean even when we say like yeah universal language yeah somehow well, this is but it's the, definitely a more controlled experience in terms yeah. of okay you're more uh, yeah you're more connected to the author because the decisions are there and they're and they're more stable yeah stable and tangible yeah. yeah and actually if you think also about the lockdowns we've been through and everything when all the exhibition spaces were closed uh, etc there have been boom in like book sales because yeah in the end okay you have yeah, everything it's closed. like a private exhibition experience sort of it's not but it can yes get close kind oh, of yeah oh yeah and yeah. sometimes i feel that it's even better uh-huh. <laughs> well you already mentioned your library that i also had the pleasure to make use of a little bit in the teaching because sometimes you would in in the classroom we would refer to something uh, that not everybody knew, and then we could look at a screen, but we could also also say, let's look if it's in Walter's library, and quite often it was. <laughs> and it was, so it was temporarily in the classroom where we were teaching from. So that was super luxury for my side. But how do you use your library, except maybe from this very extraordinary collection of mini exhibitions? Yeah, well, it's definitely like a... a catalog of uh, references when it comes to work as a editor also as a teacher that's also why I mean I do have of course like some genres that I prefer but I try to always keep the library open to also genres that are not mine because I believe that it has to be as varied as possible when it comes to yeah I mean also suggest references to students etc so I, I mean it can be just one way because the world of like I me mean, photography and photos are not one way so i try to keep this variety there and also and that's a slower process uh, but also to i started realizing that i need to decolonize it as well and that's also that that's when you also realize how difficult it is because the publishing is actually a big privilege so not everybody is able mm. to publish and that reflects also on like the publications available uh, etc yeah. so yeah. that's that's what i'm working on right now <laughs> i mean this is from my experience i've had these requests as someone who is known for working on the African continent and working with African photographers, that people approach me and they say, so can you refer me to the best female African photographers and their photo books of the last 20 years, or even, and their photo books from before to the year 2000. And, and then people get offended when I say, but that's the wrong question, because those books don't exist and for many reasons. <laughs> And then, um, yeah, the messenger tend to catch up. There may be uh, one or two exceptions huh, out there. 
But still, it's the wrong question. It's a question asked from that position of privilege in an attempt to decolonize something. But it's very dangerous if you ask the wrong questions. Have you been in touch with Ben Krewinkel from Africa and the Photo Book? Uh, not in touch, but I do know uh, the project, and I think that yeah, it's it's something really necessary. Yeah. Uh, mm. Yeah, because I mean, I remember also when I was living in uh, in Brazil uh, that something similar like that ended up in the uh, Latin American photo book publication that mm-hmm. was being like co-published by yeah, it was like Aperture and then Kozak Naifin, uh, this publisher in Brazil. That attempt of like bringing together good fundamental references of like the photo book practice uh, in Latin America was already there, and it was actually very helpful. I mean, the, the authors, uh, like the, the chief like researcher, this uh, Horacio Fernandez, was the first one that said, "Well, but this is just a selection." Of course, there is more, but already. To have like a list where, yeah, you can start from somewhere, yeah, you know. Yeah. So I think that it's fundamental. So the the work that yeah, but sometimes if you if you collect something, the decolonizing aspect might not be trying to add things that are not there because that's this asking that would then be the asking of the wrong question. But the pointing out of look, it's not there, not naturalizing that. Yeah, yeah, it's. I mean, it's very tricky and it's very easy to get to the, let's say, yeah, the wrong side and also to end up turning something that was, yeah, maybe as many books as it happens with all the history of photo books and all like those books on books that they end up becoming more collectors buying list. Yeah, it it becomes a myth making machine. Yeah, so in the end, even like books that were meant to to be an activist act, uh, they become, yeah, all of a sudden like a collectible object that it also goes against the idea that, yeah, book it's, should be a democratic medium and then, yeah, it becomes something else. Yeah. It becomes a new myth, a new position of privilege. Yes, because yeah. like I, I have it because I can buy it. And that's also something that actually... And because Martin Parr told me it's a good yes, book to just drop an obvious name. Who also did a lot of good for photography, but there's also that side of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that, yeah, it's also, I mean, and starting also from his uh, practice as a collector before, because mm-hmm. they started like basically surfing through his, uh, his uh, collection, so... So yeah, I mean, it's uh, also, I recently realized that I do have a collection until like a couple of years ago, I didn't consider it as a collection and I didn't consider myself as a collector. And now you jumped from collection to library. That seems to be the next stage, no? (laughs) Yes. I mean, also because I've always tried to keep it open to, yeah, as when it was there, like in our, in the master's room in, uh, in KDK, I don't believe in those collections where you need like gloves etc I mean of course it's good for preservation but in the end they need readers so I prefer to maybe okay have a couple of fingerprints more but having also more people that got inspired by the pictures that are in Mm -hmm. them then yeah just keep them as a yeah, something like do not touch. Yeah. It's another book. Yeah, I think I think we've been listening mostly now to, to Walter the Educator. 
Well, there's obviously <laughs> there's there's passion for that, for for sharing what interests you, no? Then Walter the editor. Well, can you Walter, maybe introduce us to him? Yeah, well, Walter the editor is better editor of like somebody else's projects than of like my projects. I think it happens with everybody. I realized that I was actually yeah good at it, and then had like some. So did that start also in Spain, or after you moved to Brazil? Kind of started in Spain, but then it was in Brazil when it uh, started really like hard in a good way. Uh, but because, yeah, I mean, there were many authors also that wanted to like publish books, but then there were still, yeah, also the photo book uh, format and concept was still like not so known. So there was a lot of like thirst to learn more about the, the format and yeah, I moved there with my library. So that was also helpful. So ended up like having, yeah, friends and also like authors that then became friends coming to, uh, to see books. And then we started like working on the editings of the projects and then yeah, thinking also in terms of the objects or so like papers and uh, possible options. That's also when I realized and that was a very good school for me and that is the fact that compared to Europe, where really like the choice of materials, papers, binding, etc., it's kind of endless, so you can really do whatever you want. There in Brazil, I found that there were many limitations in terms of, yeah, I mean, very few papers available. Sometimes also, uh, yeah, I mean, printers that were not so into this kind of publications and also our publications also to make them understand that, yeah, it's not a commercial work where, yeah, I mean, there's a bit of a problem with the magenta, but yeah, I mean, it's going to be okay. So, you know, there are like some problems, but in the end, they mm, That's also... another kind of challenge for, I mean, then you're almost back to the screen where you don't control the outcome. Huh? Exactly. <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, I mean, it's been like uh, all these limitations have actually been creative engines, I would say, because you have this challenge, you have like limitations, then you have to still make something. So it becomes way more about refining even more the concept and also the design in order to use certain materials and make them coherent with, mm -hmm. uh, with everything. So mm -hmm. there is, it's more challenging, but then when you do it, it's also more rewarding. Yeah. It's been a school and a very, yeah, important learning process for me that uh, now I carry with me also, also here. Now that, again, like endless possibilities. The, these endless possibilities somehow led you to this work that you're presenting here in the festival, the Otto Likos collection. Yes. Maybe first and foremost, what or who is Autolikos? Tolikos was... Uh, ah, see, my pronunciation here. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Was a Greek mythologic figure. And it was called basically the King of Thieves because he was able to turn his loot invisible or even change the color. So maybe if it was he was like raiding a farm and stealing like cows. Well, then he was stealing like white cows and he could turn them like black so that it would pass unnoticed. Nobody would think that those cows were actually the ones that had been stolen. So I think it's a nice and fitting metaphor for, yeah, 
the the topic of the of the project, which is yeah, antiquities trafficking, where yeah, it's uh, really crucial to make things look as they're like in a different way, uh, in order to yeah, I mean, keep trafficking them and keep looting them. Okay, we have from this god, this mythological figure, already gone to the heart of the project. Yes. No. <laughs> Could you? From there, go back to the start of that. When and how did you start engaging with this problem? Yeah. Let's say? Well, first there was the this kind of also passion for uh, archaeology, and that comes from being born and raised in uh, the Italian city, that's Ravenna, where there are a lot of uh, also Roman and Byzantine ruins. So, I mean, being familiar with that as like part of the landscape when I was like cycling uh, to school when I was a child so it has always been there then there was also like um, did, you, did you then make photos of it and then develop them in the kitchen yeah as well I'm starting to I'm sort of get the, I'm starting to get the picture of your youth now yeah. <laughs> and then there was yeah the other part is uh, yeah when I was playing in my yeah, it was like summers and summers playing in my grandmother's garden and one day I found like buried like a coin that was from the 20s so that was also something that was like wow so it was also very archaeological and also when I was going to the Alps in the in the summer there are many places where there had been also fought the First World War so you would still find like bullets and barbed wires and, and stuff so there was yeah, this fascination for yeah, something that emerges from Earth that has been like left there, uh, mm-hmm. forgotten. Or mm-hmm. So this poor. is this is an interest and sort of a, almost a, a given presence in everyday life. And then from there to the problem. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, it happened really by chance. I was still living in uh, Sao Paulo. Back then, I think it was 2017, I read an article on an Italian newspaper about the conviction of a former trafficker from Sicily that was actually also one of the ones that was financing the, the how do you call, like, well, basically helping the current mafia's godfather to remain hidden from police. So it was one of the ones that were funding this. Yeah, I read that article, it was like, what? We do, I think that everybody does have like a connection with archaeology through um, Indiana Jones, which is the worst uh, in terms of preservation and uh, living things with the communities where those pieces have been found, etc. But we'll go back to that later. But yeah, so basically I read about yeah, this trafficking was trafficking in uh, archaeological artifacts. I said, what? I want to know more. So yeah, a kind of a, like personal thing, personal interest. I started like making research uh, with the idea of, okay, when I'll move back to Europe, I'll do a project about that. Then, well, situation in Brazil made this moving uh, happen sooner than expected. Uh, Actually, I moved back yeah, in 2018 to start the uh, MAPS program. 
So yeah, then there was also this uh, research uh, proposal to present and I said, well, that's a perfect time for, uh, yeah, actually investing more time and energies in uh, and create a project about this. So that's, that's how it started. It was just really by chance reading a <laughs> newspaper article. Yeah, and then following up, connecting that somehow, maybe implicitly in, in, in first instance to this youth experience. Was that immediately there for you or? It wasn't, I mean, it was there, but at an unconscious level, then the connection became clear when I was writing the thesis. So when I had to, you know, the question mm. that you always had like during the program, but why you? Why are you the right person to talk about this specific topic and that's when start, I started thinking it's like yeah I mean where does this interest comes from mm. and it's also intimately intimately connected to what I was saying before that when I realized that oh I'm a collector because the the other part that is important for me in this project it's not just the illegal excavation side but also the fact that yeah i mean that's feeding a market that it's basically it exists because there are collectors willing to buy archaeological artifacts so there was also this interest in um, understanding the psychology of collecting as well because it was a way to discover the deep reasons for uh, antiquities collectors but also my deep reasons for collecting books in a case so there are like these two connections on both hands both the one of like dirty hands in the in the soil and the shelves with stuff on it yeah and may, so maybe also being a collector you, you can imagine what drives the buyers yeah. who want to collect you know this eagerness to to own to because I think their position in the case of this project became more and more and more problematic, no? Yeah, it's a very problematic area because, of course, well, first, there, are, there is the... I mean, it's a project that gets into the current debates about decolonizing museums and uh, also restitution processes in a way that there's a lot of debates about what should be returned from museums in Western countries to the countries of mm -hmm. origin, so like the source countries. Yeah, repatriation. Yeah, and rightfully so. But at the same time, there is this trafficking that is happening right now. So we are discussing a lot and it takes years to restitute maybe 10 artifacts to the source countries. Meanwhile, it's so easy that you can go on Facebook and find archaeological artifacts illegally excavated in like source countries and buy them and get them here so there is like we are focusing on the one part of the stream but without considering that this kind of colonial siphoning of uh, material culture is still going on right now mm -hmm. at this very moment there's a couple of things so i mean facebook there's immediately this <laughs> thing for me facebook is one of the ways that allow me to be to some extent, on two continents at the same time. It's, it's a way to maintain my relationships with people on the African continent, France, and also work-wise. I've never come across this phenomenon on Facebook. So it's not, I'm sure it's there and, and you'll tell us about it, but it's not 
the first thing one might encounter when being a Facebook user. And ah, now going into this, making making long sentences out of this has, has made me... Oh no, it's the, the, the decolonizing term that maybe... I think, you know, it's, it's, at least in my bubble, it's very present, mm-hmm. but it becomes a bit of a catch-all term, whereas, w- would you say it might be better here to not speak of decolonizing, but of deconstructing privilege, or making privileges connect to economic systems? Yes, of course. I mean, in my case, really, I got the collector starting from looters because, yeah, it was basically what I learned also with like political sciences, etc. Mm, like, yeah, exactly. This the is money. the connection. Yeah, it was. I mean, I, I ended up studying like the uh, collector's psyche because of this follow the money yeah. uh, setup. So yeah. I started like there. So it's like, OK, uh, there are people who are. Uh, excavating illegally and basically destroying a lot of archaeological sites so destroying forever the information that was contained by them because if you don't excavate in a scientific way so the patient brushwork that mm-hmm. we associate mm-hmm. with the image of, uh, of archaeologists yeah. except for um, Indiana Jones and that's why it's a very bad example but yeah, so unless you do that very like the painstakingly slow process, uh, you lose a lot of information because it's not just about the objects themselves, but about how you found them. So where what the position in which they were, it tells a lot. So if you excavate hastily, just looking for collectible items, then you're going to yeah. discard a lot of minor antiquities, as they're called. And of course, you're going to destroy the context. So that's like the first part. And yeah, so having that destruction and that destruction is happening because there is a demand on the upper end for Mm -hmm. this kind of uh, archaeological artifacts. Mm -hmm. So and that becomes also a matter of I can buy them. I like them. So I'm going to keep doing that. And then And those privileges that I can and therefore I will may be rooted in colonial systems. But so I sometimes start wondering, however important I think it is to decolonize, (laughs) that sometimes using the term almost becomes a smokescreen for other problems. This is why I'm... Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it was just, um, I mean, I mentioned it because it's a part of the debate around the restitutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And rightfully so. But yeah, what I wanted to do is also pointing out that, yeah, there is this stream is all but over. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hey, and, and so to go back to Facebook. So yeah. Facebook is a place where a lot of this, the connections are made. Yeah. And is Facebook with that? Uh, and this links uh, in a minute to the question formulated by uh, Valentin and Sanka from ARC for you in the previous episode. Is it also a tool for you? Has it also been a tool for you to to develop your project? Definitely. And that's exactly the probably the most, let's say, slippery aspect of, mm. of the project and of the role of photography in this trafficking because the fact that there are so many really like 
hundreds of groups with thousands of members, active members, makes it like hiding in plain sight, kind of. So it mm. exists, this trafficking exists in Facebook. It's not just the first thing that Facebook suggests you to look at, but in my case, I started like using a fake persona, etc. But uh, as soon as I started uh, getting into these groups, then of course the algorithm sees that I like to, mm -hmm. yeah. I like this group, so I got more suggested. But the crazy thing is that really, uh, of course, it's it's like this ambivalence of photography that is both like a tool that facilitates the work of looters and traffickers because that way they can. I mean, it's basically having a global marketplace so they can send pictures. So picture in that sense, it's that useful photography that has a purpose, that is the purpose of selling the mm -hmm. what has been looted, but also, and that's the case with other groups, also for looters to learn how to loot. So for example, to they share a picture of like some signs on the stones they find from the surface asking other looters okay so that means that maybe there is something under it should i like dig here and then the peer arrives and said now then you have to go like 30 meters southeast and, and stuff oh so, it's that specific yeah, yeah it's even like a peer learning platform for uh, looters to learn how to better loot because of course i mean you go there and uh, you want to find stuff that you can sell as soon as possible so mm -hmm. they end up also sharing material that it's uh, comes from like uh, archaeology manuals for example because yeah, yeah. it's also useful for them and yeah. that's the part of facilitating but at the same time that these pictures are facilitating this trafficking and this destruction of cultural heritage the fact that they are there on facebook on a platform that as you said i mean it's just it's, it, it has like connecting people worldwide it also means that having those pictures there reveals the trafficking. And that's when I had the possibility to actually get to know what's happening. Let me just read out loud the question yes. that was formulated by ARC for you. And it's a twofold question that concerns the tool used in your work. Considering, they say, that there is massive information being generated about the amount of transactions, which you already just uh, made very obvious and tangible for us, would an AI help in tracking them? And additionally, would an AI help as a companion trickster or troll in raising awareness about this subject and disrupting this supply chain by providing decoys, for instance? Yeah, that's also very tricky, but it's a, a nice one. Because, yeah, this AI thing has been lingering I had for a pretty long time while thinking about like strategies I could use in this project but there's of course like one thing that well Facebook is it's not so willing to share so much information and so that's why I mean it would be amazing if one could have access to the private messages that then are exchanged between the trafficker that is selling and the dealer, for example, here. Yeah, but Western then, then you get into the realm of hacking. Exactly. And that's that's not possible. AI, for also example... Also, it's something else. Then. It's something else. Yeah. I do know that AI, because, I mean, Facebook is not just the 
one of the best places to uh, traffic uh, antiquities, but it's also uh, like to traffic uh, endangered wildlife, for example, and it used to be also for like weapons, but then using AI, Facebook developed like a recognition system by feeding the like this AI with mm. thousands of images of weapons so that as soon as a picture of a weapon is posted, it's immediately spotted. But the problem with antiquities is that there are so many different kinds and in, of objects and mm -hmm. in very different conditions so from like still full of dirt and soil to uh, already like restored and stuff so it's very difficult to create an AI that is actually effective in uh, spotting these uh, it's too multi-form yeah uh, so now basically I mean after doing nothing for years even if yeah, there's, for example, the ATAR project, that is a monitoring group that has been created and it's focusing on monitoring the Facebook groups that are trafficking antiquities from the Middle East and North African countries, which is also the, the scope that I chose for, uh, for my project. And then I also started collaborating with this, uh, with this group. But yeah, they've been uh, sending reports to Facebook like several times. There is even a UN Security Council memo that is recommending Facebook to counteract this trafficking in a more incisive way because this is actually financing terrorist groups and armed, armed groups in the region. Oh, man, For then example, it reaches out again on the uh, somewhere else to the political science uh, context, no? Yeah. Uh, the geopolitics. Yeah, it's geopolitics. Yeah. It's definitely something that I'm very much interested in so yeah i mean it's there's also that part but mm. so facebook is aware uh, they haven't do, done nothing for years except for maybe deleting a group and with it all the information that was stored there so there are also some lawyers that are considering that as a kind of uh, it could be considered as helping criminals that make crim crimes against humanity so it's like a kind of facilitators. They're mm -hmm. thinking also about suing Facebook for that because, yeah, okay, you delete everything and then what? Why not sharing that information with investigators? Yeah, because it's also documentation. Yeah, because they do store everything. I mean, even now I go there in a group and they post a picture of a recently looted artifact. Normally, as soon as it's sold, the picture is deleted. But it's deleted on for, the front for me end. as a user that is looking at it but yeah. is it really deleted in facebook servers so mm -hmm. we could do a lot with that but that's yeah. facebook just doesn't want to they just said that okay uh, we declare the uh, sales of antiquities any kind of antiquities like banned on the platform but we rely on other users reporting posts so yeah. of course if you're in a group where everybody's interested in keep the trafficking going nobody's going to report anybody so that's that's the current status of yeah. uh, of the thing and i'm not saying that facebook is the only place where this is happening i mean there is a lot happening also yeah. like in the dark web etc but what i think it's really shocking uh, of facebook is that yeah i mean it's a platform that almost everybody is familiar with and it, it turns it like so easy you don't yeah, need to yeah. be a hacker to do that yeah it's super easy You've already mentioned a bit how and where photographs are involved in the process and listeners may also be, be able to fill in some of the holes. But in your show, there is a nice ladder-like structure on the wall 
And maybe we can make the picture more complete or more explicit by walking through it and you mentioning where the photographs are or where they're used where, and, and what role they play. So it starts with the archaeological objects, no? Yeah, which is still the... underground and mm -hmm. unknown. Mm -hmm. So it's there, but we just didn't discover it yet. Yeah, so th that's objects. So it always goes a noun and then a verb. No? Yeah, There's so a you noun, have like so the change of the status of the object, so yeah. from the very bottom that it's the archaeological artifacts yeah. to the very top, which is the collectible object, yeah. and then so all the stages in so between. So the archaeological object, there's sort of it itself is not yet seen, is not yet known, yeah. but there's a suspicion maybe of its presence, and there's other objects yeah. that have a mythological status that almost projects to underground, I could imagine. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of also surface signs that were kind yeah. of codes so that they could point at the, for example, yeah, I mean, the burrowing side. And sometimes you have it like it's like one kilometer away. That's then very particular knowledge yeah. where visuals play a role and then pictures of already excavated archaeological artifacts yes. that play a role. Then that's looting. This is the first yeah. action. The first looting. verb. So you have like looters get going to, yeah, mostly to known sites and start excavating where uh, there haven't been excavations before. If you look at like, there are satellite images of a few Syrian, very famous archaeological sites. And you see how like in a matter of like six months, there were like thousands of pits because it's already famous. So they said, mm, there's going to be something. The satellite images, are they witnesses to this happening or are they also used by the looters sometimes i do have found um image taken like a screenshot that uh what looter wannabe took and shared on one of those uh, groups focused on like peer learning for looters showing yeah what looks like the 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 ruins of a former mm -hmm. uh, building so mm -hmm. asking if it gave the position and everything, yeah. so do you think that this could be a ruin? Do you think that this could be yeah, something yeah. interesting? So yeah, I mean, I did witness a case where... So the satellite used. image is used and then someone photographing the looting and making that available in the peer learning process. Then we have the, the next noun, which is the loot. Yeah, so the loot... That so gets photographed. Yes, so you have, yeah, the object has been found by a looter, so it becomes loot. It's not just an archaeological artifact anymore, it's loot now. And that's the phase, uh, like the, the, the stage of which looters take pictures. So it's the first time that that object is being photographed. They take pictures and, yeah, I mean, some cases they post them straight on these, kind, also on these groups. Some other times they already know some trafficker, so that they're sending images to the trafficker to know if there's interest in that. So that's the first part. But before, before we get to the trafficking, yeah. we get to smuggling as the next verb. Yeah, which is basically, yeah, it's when, it, I mean, they're actually, I mean, not interchangeable, but yeah, it's the, like the first part when really like this traffickers networks that are normally uh, they refer to armed groups or also 
traffickers' networks that were already trafficking other things like drugs and weapons, so they already have their established uh, smuggling mm-hmm. routes, and they just start. They just started also trafficking in artifacts because, yeah, I mean, it's another thing they can make money with. I can imagine that in the smuggling itself, photographs are or visibility is not desired no. to. <laughs> no, no, actually, yeah, I mean. Uh, during like both smuggling and trafficking, images are very scarce and Mm -hmm. uh, hard to find because it has to stay invisible. It has to, yeah, I mean, there are cases when, for example, yeah, artifice has been found in uh, vegetables uh, transports, like from, because yeah, basically from Syria, the main route that brings this object to Europe is through Turkey. Actually, this, there are Turkish traffickers that were already active yeah, with drugs and oil mm-hmm. and weapons, etc. They also bring that and then they yeah. cross the Bosporus and then they, they made the Balkanic uh, route in, yeah, I mean, vegetables, trucks. Um, and the pictures. Yeah. So between struggling and trafficking, that's contraband. Is there a picture involvement there or a presence? Or is that that's also the under the table? We don't yeah, want visibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's under the table. It, uh, of course, also that diagram, it's a very simplified version because there are like that's what hundreds, they are for, huh? of course, hundreds yeah. of different ways of trafficking antiquities. But that was really like the basics. So basically, yeah. then you have like local traffickers that are handing in this antiquities to like bigger and more international traffickers that surely are already in touch also with some collectors in Western countries or some dealer. And they all still, they build, the whole chain is built on pictures that were made of the loot. Yes. Do those have a a specific quality, those, the the pictures of the loot, or is that just depending on whoever? It's quality because, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it's an example of like, like the poor images. So that they lose quality to gain spread and speed, yeah. as Hino yeah. Styro put it. And yeah, that's really like the concept at work. So yeah. you see like pictures taken very hastily and of course with mobile phones also the quality is not like the mm-hmm. best. But it's a picture you can start working with. So it's yeah. a picture that is teasing the trafficker to buy it from the looter and then also the mm. middleman to buy from the trafficker and so yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. But so that picture stays a bit that Yeah, then it's also road. difficult to know what's being exchanged during these uh, all these stages because yeah. yeah, basically the part that is visible now is the picture that the first picture is taken on Facebook. So that's also where really like photography reveals because it's mm-hmm. a way if there was there wasn't that picture, we wouldn't know that that object exists. Exactly. Then but maybe and probably there would be other pictures produced across this trafficking route, but we, we just don't know. What we do know is that most likely in a few years, the, these artifacts will resurface in Western countries. And then as a commodity. As a commodity. Because that's your next noun. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a commodity, so after the trafficking, so they become a commodity, let's say they arrive here, and then you have the laundering process that starts, because of course there are, I mean, basically the, the UNESCO Convention of 1970 against the illicit trafficking of uh, cultural property, 
uh, stated that yeah, everything that has been found before 1970 and exported or plundered mm-hmm. <laughs> can remain where it is. So basically a way to save Western collections. Yeah. So that so that all like this yeah. so, so all this repatriation becomes goodwill from our side. Yeah, and that yeah. becomes a lot of, uh, becomes uh, about like having bilateral agreements with mm. states. So it's because it's not something that is mandatory. What is mandatory according to this convention is that everything that has been found after 1970 should remain where it was found. That's the trick now that uh, if you can produce fake documentation to create a provenance that apparently states or convincingly states that that object has been found and brought before to the yeah, western countries yeah. before 1970 the trick is done because a, yeah. a loot and then you can doesn't look different from a legally yeah. traded so one. then you can make your super nice photos of your commodity and show your riches exactly and that's what you see in like auction catalogs gallery catalogs so then it becomes this uh, photography instead of being that poor image that it's very mm. instrumental for, well it's another kind of instrumental it's, yeah, then, it's no? another kind but then it's uh, yeah it's a rich image so basically it's also made in a way you always see like those like black backgrounds and very mm-hmm. theatrical lights etc just to enhance the beauty because then when it becomes a commodity and a collectible object it's yeah. about the beauty it's not yeah. that much about just the history it's yeah. about so the beauty of an object and so the scarcity so the exclusivity so the price in the end yeah 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 so then money. so first so that that poor image is there to to generate desire with the the collectors or the potential collectors and, and then traffickers. and traffickers of course they're in there and yeah. um so well that is a certain type of value i guess but a, but a sort of an intangible one and then from the commodity level when the pictures can become rich then it's another kind of myth making and adding value in a more tangible yes, way yes definitely because then it can be out in the, out in the open and yeah and yeah. also by making i mean then you have these pictures and i'm not saying that all galleries and all auction houses i mean that's really not what i'm saying that they're all uh, knowingly selling mm. illegal uh, antiquities But since it's a system where uh, anonymity and uh, yeah, I mean, like kind of the secrecy about who is the seller, who is yeah. the buyer, it's very much valued because it comes from yeah. I remember I read in a, in a book while I was doing research like the gentleman's right for anonymity because if you're a collector and you need money, you want to sell something, you don't want the others to know that you're selling because maybe. They are gonna uh, know that ah okay so he's short of cash so maybe I should try to yeah. get like some deal yeah, yeah. and also like dealers that don't want to reveal their source so there is this like secrecy that it's always there and of course that protects like collectors but it's also the perfect way to yeah. have illegal stuff getting in and so all of a sudden look legal yes. Yeah. It's in this very gray zone yeah. that these things can happen. Ah, it sounds like you learned 
all sorts of things you couldn't have imagined when you started this whole thing. Yeah, no, definitely. When I went also to different galleries and famous auction houses, also as a fake persona of this yeah. young collector. Uh, so, so you did the tr you you did your little share of trolling. Yes, yes, I did. I mean, I've been to many galleries pretending that I was this yeah this uh, young Brazilian collector that of course was collecting with his father. So I was like staging. Uh, mm -hmm. the negotiation for the purchase but then I had this exit strategy that yeah but I have to call dad to ask if it's okay if it's and a that piece worked? that he wants yeah it worked and actually many dealers like started talking a lot and I started with this naive thing that well I'm kind of new in this so what about the provenance I know that if it's being discovered after 1970 there have to be papers I said yeah yeah, yeah. so You know, just as a way, okay, I'm, I'm yeah. the naive one, so please tell me. And they started talking a lot. And I, yeah, I mean, I have all those conversations and stuff. So mm. it was a way to get like first-hand information. And it was, yeah. yeah, super important for me. Hey, and then the visitors to the show, they yes. see very few photographs. Yes. Four, five mm, framed photographs. Yeah, well, including the ones that are in... Well, they do, I mean, framed, yeah, that's also when we were talking before about like photos and the click, it's... Yeah, exactly. Of... This is, so I'm now getting back to very yeah. tangible what is on show and what yeah. people see or may not see if they don't have a chance to come. Yeah, But... so on show you have this, uh, well, first the textual information, which is this uh, like very simple diagram. Mm -hmm, uh, that we just uh, went through, uh, yeah. yeah. And think with this trafficking in a nutshell. And then you have two uh, opposite walls. In one, you have the uh, Facebook wall where there is a TV with a video that is basically scrolling through uh, hundreds of uh, posts. Yeah. That so I we get a little bit. We get a, We get a little bit of the experience yes. you have been having. Yeah. So you see posts taken from groups where looters learn from each mm -hmm. other. Others from groups that are devoted to actually selling things. Uh, so you get an idea. There are also a couple of videos of actually of looters that are bragging that they found something. So they make a video of them breaking into oh. an ancient tomb. Yeah. You know? So it's, uh, so that's the, like the Facebook part on the opposite wall, you have the open market wall. So there are a few pictures that I took with a um, hidden camera while I was playing the young collector okay uh, so that's character. why th those are poor images because they also are yeah yeah it's a very low resolution also because mm -hmm. yeah the camera was it was hidden in a pen so it was very small and not so much uh, yeah very yeah. little resolution but it but definitely has the suggestion there's something going on here yeah that what i wanted to focus there was on the gestures because mm -hmm. since investigating also the collector's psyche, I understood that the main reason why people want to own, privately own, antiquities is because of this irrational connection with the past through touching, through the touch. So by touching an antiquity, immediately you're connected with the artist that created it like thousands of years ago, etc. So that's the thing that the <laughs> collectors value the most and that's why For them, I mean, to see them in a museum under glass, it doesn't work. They want to the yeah. experience the real thing. And is this also why you started making 3D objects? Yes. 
that was a way also because by downloading all those images that looters and traffickers post of like objects uh, for sale, I thought, well, that's a nice collection like of images, but it can still fall short when it comes to raising awareness among like uh, collectors, which mm -hmm. is my final goal. So it's like to see an image, mm, yes, okay, you can understand something, but it's not not so much so mm -hmm. to use this uh, by yeah creating 3d models out of this 2d pictures and then print them out they become i call them like provisional originals because now of course those artifacts are the originals are missing we don't know where they are mm -hmm. but we're pretty sure that they will resurface in maybe 10 15 20 years and there are already some that already resurfaced in recent mm -hmm. Time, so we know that they'll reappear in the open market and uh, so yeah meanwhile while they're missing while well, we have this sort of provisional original that also carries on its surface the wounds of this trafficking because for example if I have uh, and there are many cases also of objects that are on show there of these 3d prints that yeah all of a sudden you have a completely flat surface because of course if I have just a front image yeah you have I limited information on the so, other yeah side. yeah so it's, you can't feed the yeah. printer with that information and therefore so they yeah. don't want to be I don't want them to be replicas that's yeah. also why I didn't uh, use the 3d print as a way to create a mold to then make a yeah. plaster copy yeah, I mean, yeah. Just, they... a sort of viewer gets photographs, contextual information for photographs and 3D yeah. interpretations of photographs yes. and all together this gives us an idea of your research of a growing collection of this thieving uh, entity. <laughs> yes, it's a, yeah, you said, right, it's a growing collection because I just started and, and yeah, the yeah. goal is to have more um yeah so that it can be also evidence for the future so yes yeah. these pieces will reappear in the yeah. open market in the future by seeing these images now we'll be able to yeah. spot them and say so you're you're documenting you're witnessing you're also taking on an activist position <laughs> it's a very it's a well we, we've gotten to know so many sides of walter here <laughs> <laughs> as uh, an artist, photographer, <laughs> as an editor, and then all these different roles, even in this one project, uh, which I hope people will get to see either in this iteration or in future ones. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for inviting. It's been very nice. <laughs>